We're going to be continuing our study through the book Habits of Grace. And uh, do you all want to, did you, you know what, I'll just do this and you guys can just turn this way. <laughs> no, that's all right. So uh, what I did by way of review was to put in some quotes from what we had looked at last week. So you're welcome to look at those. And then also some from what we're going to look at this week from chapter 2. It says week 2, but it's also chapter 2. Uh, so, uh, any questions or thoughts from last week? Uh, anything that you wanted to talk about? Anything that was, uh, should all be familiar, I think, but... Alright, we'll, uh, we'll go into chapter 2, and chapter 2 is titled, Read for Breadth and study for depth. So, start on page 43, and it makes this comment, there is some science to good Bible reading. So what do you think the science part of Bible reading would be? Okay, so that could be part of it, but um, uh, when you're reading the Bible, what sort of science kind of things what sort of structure kind of things do you have to look for to understand what you're reading? Okay, context. What else? Okay, literature, genre, type of literature. Okay, good. What else? Good lighting. All right. Uh, even basic things like what's a subject, what's a verb, how do things in a sentence relate to each other. Um, those things are important because if we don't get those things, we're going to misinterpret the sentence. For example, in German, word order is different from in English. Uh, and sometimes in Spanish, too. Sometimes in Spanish, uh, instead of saying, I like something, the way to say it is, it pleases me, and you just structure it that way. And so if you don't understand the way that a particular language works, the structure of the sentences, you're going to be thrown off in what the meaning is. Um, also on this page, it says, just like we learn to ride a bike with training wheels, it can help to have someone spell out a simple method of Bible study with the steps of observation, interpretation, an application. When I was in high school, we did a, an approach to the book of James that was observation, correlation, interpretation, and application. So you'd look at the passage, you'd say just first of all, what does it say? That was observation. Correlation was, what do other similar passages say? Kind of like cross-references. Interpretation is more, what does it mean? Not just surface level, what, is, what are the words, but what does it mean? And then application was, so if it means this, and here's other passages that are connected to it, and here's the observations that I've made, what does that have to do with the way that I live? And those are helpful steps to go through. Um, the point that I think he's going to make next is that we shouldn't feel like um, we shouldn't go through it kind of pedantically or ritually or just like with no heart in it. And so that's the point that he's going to make on the next page, which is, good Bible reading is no mere science. It is an art, 
And the best way to learn the art of reading the Bible for yourself is this, read it for yourself. The significance of it being an art is sometimes it's easy for us to say the Bible says blank because that's the way that someone has always explained it to us. And while that may be good and may be true what they've said, sometimes you get a slightly different sense about a passage when you read it in its context, when you read it alongside other passages of Scripture and those sorts of things. So, for example, take a passage like John 3.16. How, do, how does John 3.16 often get explained? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How is that often explained? What word is emphasized in that sentence? Yeah. Or sometimes it's for God so loves the world. God loves the world so much. It's a handout right there for you. So God loves the world so much that He doesn't want anybody to perish. And while there is a sense in which God does love the world, and while there is a sense in which God doesn't want people to perish, the point of the passage is not so as in so much, but so as in here's the way that God loves the world. God loves the world in that He sent His Son. And if we don't look at that in the context, for example, John 3.36 says, the one who does not believe in the Son will not see life. When we, when we miss that part of the context, then we'll overemphasize God so loves the world and we'll not see that it's talking about the, the way in which God loves the world. So, science, art, there's, there's both parts of it involved in Bible reading. We'll come a little bit further. Uh, it gives the example. He says, if you ask somebody who's been reading the Bible for a whole bunch of years, and you say, what are the steps that you go through? He makes, he makes the point that you may not, that person probably is not going to give you the exact same steps as someone else you would ask. And it may not always be, here's the three things I always do. And going back to the training wheels analogy. If you don't have training wheels and you get on the bike, generally you're going to fall over a bunch of times when you first start learning to ride the bike. But once you start to learn to ride the bike, if you are so devoted to there only being one method of approaching things, it can be like the training wheels. Can you go really, really fast on a bike when you got training wheels? They get in the way. And so uh, we shouldn't lose the value of those things, but we shouldn't always be dependent on them either. It says, at the end of the day, there is simply no replacement for finding a regular time and place, blocking out distractions, putting your nose in the text, and letting your mind and heart be led and captured and thrilled by God himself communicating to us in his objective written words. If you feel uncomfortable in the scriptures and inadequate in the art of Bible reading, the single most important thing you can do is make a regular habit of reading the Bible for yourself. This is a really important point because sometimes we think the way to understand the Bible is to buy a whole bunch of books and read through what they say about the Bible. And books can be helpful, books can be good, but they are not a substitute for actually reading what the Bible says. Same thing with something like a commentary. A commentary is helpful. But sometimes we start with the commentary to say, what does this verse say? 
or the notes in a study Bible or something like that. And what we ought to do instead is read the passage over and over and say, what is it saying? And try to think about it. And then use the commentaries to sort of check your work in the same way that uh, you know, the answer key in a math textbook would be like, so here are the steps, you know, those kinds of things. And when we start with the commentaries, when we start with the helps, we never learn to think about what the Bible is saying on its own and for ourselves, and, and we, uh, it becomes difficult. We, we always have this sense of dependence on other people. Same thing, yes? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Something else that's actually a good suggestion is, also before you get to that step of looking at a commentary or a Bible reference book, if you have a couple of different versions of the Bible, maybe a NASB, an NIV, an ESV, read the verse in a couple of different versions. Because sometimes that'll bring to light is there some sort of disagreement about the meaning of a text or, or, or something like that. And so, yeah, that can be very helpful. The King James is historically very important and, and all of those sorts of things, but practically very difficult to use in the present day, which is why we don't use it as our, as our translation. There are, there are other issues to navigate, like what are the most accurate texts we have available today of the Greek and the Hebrew? from which the Bible can be translated. When they translated the King James, they only had texts from, let's say, AD 1000. Now we have some that are significantly earlier. Not dramatic changes, but changes that explain the reasons why there are longer phrases sometimes in the King James versus some other versions. So yes, uh, compare Bible versions. That can be a great, a great way to approach Bible reading. So, um, but, but read the Bible. Don't just take other people's word for what the Bible says. Because particularly on difficult passages, you'll find a funny thing to be true. Study Bibles will skip sometimes the hard passages. <laughs> you'll be reading along and say, this is the one I really have a question. Oh, they didn't say anything about that. Well, why not? Because there are a variety of opinions. And I would point out, there's only one right answer. So it's not, it could be this, or it could be this, or it could be this. It's one of those things. But we need to take the time to sit down and think through it and arrive at, at, at what God has said. Um, yes? Mm-hmm. Do you have an example? All right. Um, turn to Second Peter. I think it's Second Peter three. So Peter is talking in Second Peter three about the day of the Lord. Um, 
Then he, the famous verse about a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And then we come to verse 9, and it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, we have to say, well, what is the promise that he's referring to? The answer would be, verse 4, the promise of his coming. So it's not just any promise in the whole world, but it's specifically the promise of Christ coming back. So, he's saying, don't read the fact that Jesus isn't back yet as slowness or forgetfulness. That's what mockers say. Everything always is the same. He's not going to come back. Why do you keep believing in this stuff? That's the sort of arguments that they make. So the last part of the verse is the question of, is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance? There's at least three possibilities, perhaps more. One is, God not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance is, Jesus is not going to come back until everybody in the whole world has believed in him because God doesn't want to punish anybody in hell. That would be something called universalism, the idea that everybody's going to eventually be saved. Are there other passages that exclude that interpretation? Yeah, all the ones that talk about hell or uh, Revelation 20 where it says the devil and those who are allied with him will be cast into the lake of fire. Clearly there are those who with Satan are judged by God. So this passage does not mean that God is going to save everybody in the whole entire world. So what's another possibility? Another possibility is God wants everybody to be saved, but he can't pull it off. Or the way that some people have said it that sounds slightly better is that there are two wills in God. There's God's will of desire and God's will of decree. But again, my hesitation with that is it seems to create in God a division that exists for us because of lack of knowledge and lack of power. I think the correct interpretation of this passage would be the patience is towards you, towards his people. God is not willing that any of those that he has purposed to save would fail to be saved, and so he delays his return until the full number of those he has appointed to salvation are brought in. So, are there multiple interpretations of that passage? Yes, but only one is true. That's the point that I'm trying to make. That may not be exactly along the lines of what you're saying. Sometimes people say, well, this word can mean this or it can mean this. I think, there, I might be wrong on this, but generally a word only means one thing in one context. So even if a word could mean a couple of different things in different places in that one spot, I think it generally just means one thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's where it's helpful to read different translations because uh, I think, like we've talked about before, the NIV tends to interpret a little bit more. So, Second Thessalonians, where it says, you know, patience of hope, you know, that sort of thing. It's helpful to have an explanation of what's the relationship between hope and patience. 
And we could arrive at that if we think about it, but then IV kind of takes that step one step further and sort of says, here's what it is, and we have to say, do we agree with that or not? So, yeah, so the, yeah, I think that's a, good, that's a good thing to think about. Um, all right, so read the Bible. And then, uh, bottom of page 45, he says this, One piece of counsel for any Bible reading plan, however ambitious, is this. Don't let the push to check boxes keep you from lingering over a text, whether to seek to understand it, study, or to emotionally glory in what you understand, meditation. Think of your Bible reading as a regular surveying of the biblical landscape to find a spot to settle down for a few moments to meditate, which is the high point and richest moment of Bible intake. More on meditation in the next chapter. Go for breadth in reading and depth in study where you stop at something you don't understand, pose questions, give answers, consult resources, and perhaps capture a brief reflection in words or a diagram. There's a place in Bible reading for raking and gathering up leaves at a swift pace, but when we dig in Bible study, we unearth the diamonds. In meditation, we marvel at the jewels. This illustration may not connect with all of you, but if I'm walking around my backyard and I say, here is something interesting that I see, I can just sort of say, okay, I got to get back inside. I got five minutes to be in the backyard. I'm going to be done with it. Or I can look at and I say things like, what's that bug? Why is this flower this color today when it was that color yesterday? Why is there a hole in this leaf? And is it something that I need to be concerned about? Those are the sorts of questions that if we look at God's Word like a landscape, like a painting, like something to be studied, that we should say, okay, I could just sort of read over it real fast and kind of get the sense of it. But sometimes we need to pause and say, so, so why does he say it this way? Or why doesn't he say this thing? Or how does that fit with this other passage? And sometimes if we feel like we are a servant of the Bible reading plan rather than seeing it as a tool to help us get in God's Word, uh, some people gets really bo get really bothered if they don't have the boxes checked off. I don't know if that's you. Everybody's personality is a little bit different. It's okay if you don't check off the box as long as you are thinking about and studying and looking at God's Word. And so that's the point that he's trying to make. You, you come to something and you're like, I need to think about this more. It's not bad for you to push three days of the Bible reading plan off and be off by three days if, if to really understand that it takes you three days to reread that section of the Bible. And there's approaches to, to Bible reading, which I think he talks about in the next chapter on meditation, where instead of reading a, a large passage every day, sometimes you might read the same passage for a month. And, uh, you know, there, there's a variety of different approaches. For example, I had a, a teacher in Bible college. He said this. He said, I want you to sit down and pick one of Paul's letters each weekend and read through the whole thing in one sitting, like no interruptions. You get a different sense for the book of Romans when you read it beginning to end in an hour, a couple hours, instead of just reading a verse here, or a verse there, or a few verses here. Uh, when we get to the chapter on uh, memorization, he's going to say, again, sometimes we're like, I've got to memorize this big chunk. 
sometimes it's helpful to memorize this is a really key thought in a particular passage. Uh, so it's just a lot of different uh, ways of thinking at it, ways of approaching it. Perhaps. Yeah. Right. And if you, um, yeah, if you allow enough time, because if we say I'm only going to set aside 10 minutes for Bible reading, then you're going to feel really rushed in it too. So, uh, you know, find a time maybe, and everybody's different. Maybe you're better in the morning, maybe you're better in the afternoon, but leave a little bit longer chunk of time. I mean, the same thing is true in like having a conversation with someone in your family. Really good conversations usually take longer than five minutes, right? Because you're sort of doing surface level stuff for a little bit. It's the same thing, I think, is true of Bible reading. Uh, we talked about that. Uh, this is something that I didn't put in as one of the quotes because I wanted to talk with you about it a little bit. He says, One final thing to say about Bible reading as an art, not just science, is that Jesus taught his apostles to read the scriptures in what we might describe as an artistic way. A little bit later he says, Jesus himself read the scriptures with much more flair, not in any way making things up, but with the eye, seeing with the eyes of faith what's really there to be seen below the surface, out of sight to the natural mind. Such deep reading is a kind of acquired taste through regular practice, not an easily transferred skill. It's developing the apostolic palate for finding Jesus throughout the scriptures by tracking the trajectory of God's grace in its many textures and tones without falling into either unbelief or make-believe. What do you think about that set of statements? Should we read the Bible in an artistic way instead of rigorously? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What else? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when the, uh, when the apostles take something from the Old Testament and they say, this fulfills a statement that seems to have very little to do with what they're talking about, what's happening there? Because I, I think that's the point that he's kind of touching on. Okay. 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 So, for example, there's a statement in the Old Testament where it says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then, if I remember right, Matthew uses that and applies it to Christ from the sense that he is brought up out of Egypt after Herod dies and all that sort of thing. 
But originally it didn't refer to that. So what are they doing then? Okay. Was it a prophecy, I guess, is my question. Okay, so I think what we have to see when we look at the New Testament is when we see something fulfill, there's different ways that the word fulfill is used. Sometimes the word fulfill is God says this is going to happen and this is the point at which it happens. Sometimes the New Testament writers use the word fulfill in, by way of analogy as in this was an experience in the life of David or in the life of Israel. This is an experience in the life of Christ and they're showing the connection or the contrast between the experience of David or of Israel and the experience of Christ. And so the, the thing that I want us to be careful of is sometimes if we assume that fulfill is always a prophecy, this event will happen, here's when the event happens, or like the passage about the virgin birth, uh, a, a woman will be with child and, and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, that sort of thing. There are some people who say, well, there was a woman who had a child in the day of that king of Israel, and then also it happened with Mary and with Jesus. The reason they say that is they would say, well, Jesus coming hundreds of years in the future couldn't be assigned to this guy. But I think that that's kind of reading into the passage, and, and my, my, my point is, I don't think that prophecies have multiple fulfillments. And so my hesitation with what he's saying is, I don't know exactly where he's coming from, but there are some people who say prophecies have multiple fulfillments. I would say that you could have a passage of Scripture, and part of that passage of Scripture could be fulfilled at one point, and part of it at a later date, like when the apostles apply the text from, I think, Zechariah, to what happens at the day of Pentecost, people speaking in tongues and all that sort of thing. This is a pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. But there's a bunch of other things that are happening in that passage that haven't yet happened. So all of what I'm trying to say is this idea of reading the Bible artistically, sometimes we just sort of trudge through the Bible and, and we don't look up or we just see it as a very tedious thing or we, we're hesitant to say, this passage reminds me of this passage because we don't want to make it say something other than it says. And we should be careful to interpret the Bible literally and accurately and all of those sorts of things. But I think the more that we read through the Bible, the more that we see connections and parallels and repetitions that we would otherwise miss. There were so many things that happened in the life of David that similarly happened in the life of Christ, except where David failed, Christ didn't fail. There were things that happened in the life of Adam, except where Adam sinned, Christ didn't sin. There were things that happened in the experience of Israel, except where Israel failed to trust God and follow His will and all those sorts of things, Jesus didn't. And so, you know, when we come to something like the idea of types, Sometimes people say, well, we don't want to talk about types because they all tend to be made up and all those sorts of things. And, and I think we have to be careful. If the Bible doesn't make a connection, we need to admit that we may be making a wrong connection. But we need to also recognize that not everything is spelled out exactly and we can see the, the, the themes and the, uh, 
the relationships between ideas and scripture and those things become more clear the more we read through God's word. So, while I have a little bit of hesitation about the way he phrased it, I don't want to see multiple fulfillments of prophecy or us making up things that aren't in the text, I do think he makes a good point that we should recognize that there may be parallels between one section of Scripture and another that we don't always think about, either because we haven't read or heard the Old Testament preached regularly, or because we haven't read the Bible enough to see those connections. And so I think that's a good point that he makes. Uh, You'll see this a lot, one final comment, you'll see this a lot in a lot of modern books. There's an emphasis to... Uh, to find the gospel throughout the Bible, or to find Jesus throughout the Bible. And I would just say it this way, not every text speaks of Jesus in the same way, but there is probably a connection point from every different place in the Bible to the message of the gospel and to truth about God, and so that's helpful for us to think about. All right. So, if we see that there is value in doing this, one of the things that's always puzzled me, or at least made me pause a little bit, is why do we say every Christian must read their Bible if people really didn't have access to the Bible until after the printing press? As in, here's my personal copy of the Bible that I must read. I think he says it very well here on page 47. He says... It is a remarkable thing that we have Bibles that we can read personally whenever we want. For most of church history, and still today in many places in the world, Christians have not had their own personal copies of the Bible. They had to gather to hear someone read it to them. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's probably part of why Paul told Timothy to do that in the church. Was all they had other than memory for Bible intake. But now with printed Bibles and electronic Uh, options galore, we have priceless access to God's very words to us, words that we are tragically tempted to take lightly. Reading your own copy of the Bible daily is not a law that every believer must abide. Most Christians have not had this option. But the habit of daily Bible reading can be a marvelous means of God's grace. Why miss this bounty and blessing? And he's going to say, page 48, It is a wonderful thing to read all the way through the Bible, but this is not a yoke to be set on every Christian every year. And then he says, for those considering the journey, you may be surprised how doable it is. It takes about 70 hours to read the Bible from cover to cover. That's less time than the average American spends in front of the TV every month, observes Don Whitney. In other words, if most people would exchange their TV time for scripture reading, they'd finish reading the entire Bible in four weeks or less. If that sounds unworkable, consider this. In no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in less than a year's time. So there's a couple of different angles to look at this. It is not a mandate that you must read your Bible every day. It is not required for sanctification. And this is a really important point because sometimes people make it sound like it is. If you didn't read your Bible today, you don't love Jesus. That said, he makes also the opposite point, which is very good. If you spend 70 or 100 hours a month watching TV and you don't read your Bible when you have the opportunity to do so because you have 
5, 10, 20 copies of the Bible available to you in print or online or on your computer, you are missing out on a blessing and possibly not being a good steward of opportunities God has given to you. And I, I think that that's a really helpful balance. You don't have to read through the Bible in a year. You may read very slowly and find it very challenging and intimidating. You feel guilty. I didn't read the Bible through in a year. You may have a particular day when you are busy from morning till the time your head hits the pillow. You can still love God and not have read your Bible that day. That being said, if you never read your Bible and you always spend your time doing other things that have nothing to do with God, at some point you have to ask yourself, what's going on with my relationship with God because it's probably not the way that it should be. Does that, is that sort of balance helpful? There's this, we don't have to feel guilty if we miss a day or if it takes us three years to read the Bible through. Yes. Yeah. I also like great comforts approach to it, but it's written for the people. Mm-hmm. Someone says they're a Christian, but I think reading the Bible is yesterday. Yeah. And if they said no, say, well, did you eat yesterday? Right. And you take time for things that are important to you. Right. Yeah. But you're right with it's not a mandate, but I don't know anybody whose day is jam packed from morning to evening that they don't have time to. Right. Yeah. At least not consistently every day. I'm just saying there may be one day that's like that, but it shouldn't be every day. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is a very important lesson too that I've tried to been teaching Braden lately and I've had to learn for myself. There is not time in the day to do everything that you want to do. Sometimes we feel like we ought to be able to um exercise and spend time with friends and family and watch a movie and read our Bible and pray and uh, spend some time outside and maybe go to the store. There's not time in the day to do every single last thing that you could possibly do. Life is a series of choices that exclude other choices. And so to, uh, to Paul's point, you've got to say what's important and make time for those things. All right few last things here as we as we wrap up this morning um talked about this idea of raking i think he borrowed it from john piper uh future grace piper says this when my sons complain a book is too hard to read i say raking is easy but all you get is leaves digging is hard but you might find diamonds and he brings back the analogy of your yard raking the leaves is a way to make the yard look better really quickly but sometimes digging in a garden or working on a fence, that's a lot of really hard work, but sometimes that can even do more to improve the look of a particular area. Uh, There's a place for doing things that take less effort and can be done quickly, but if we only ever focus on what's easy, we may be missing out on what's important. Uh, He talks about some of the distractions that we can face. It takes less energy, especially early in the morning before the coffee is kicked in, to keep reading, skimming along the surface, instead of slowing down, asking questions, and capturing brief reflections. In a minute flat, we can be done with another chapter and ready to check the box. It feels more challenging to pick up a pencil or to open a laptop or tablet and go straight to an empty document, 
for recording the thoughts from the passage without getting sidetracked into email, social media, or whatever else. Makes this point. The Bible is something where you can pick up skills and techniques in a classroom or a book on Bible study, but like any other sport, there's no substitute for getting yourself in the field and in the game. Listening to gifted, insightful preachers and teachers is critical. Using good references provides aid, but there is no stand-in for studying the scriptures for ourselves. There's a place for seeing the uh, increasing sense of the big picture of Jesus' rescue of sinners and his growing depth in the little pieces that make up the big picture. There's a place for reading whole Bible books in one sitting and a place for going deep in half a verse. Without raking, we won't have enough sense of the landscape to dig in the right places. Without digging and making sure the banner of our theology is securely tethered to specific specific biblical sentences and paragraphs, our resources will soon dry up for feeding our souls. This is another point that I think builds on what Paul was saying. Uh, when we have opportunity to read what the Bible says, sometimes uh, we don't have a sense of urgency to take in more of what God has said because we're not sharing what God has said with other people. If you find yourself in the habit of sharing what God has said with other people, you're going to run out of things to say if there's not also an intake of what has God said. And then a, a final very important point that I think we need to keep in mind is that we are not doing this by ourselves. Sometimes we see this as a personal thing and sometimes we see this as an individual thing. But who are we connected with as Christians? The Holy Spirit. And who else? Other believers in the church, right? So this is not merely an individual thing as in contrast to being a part of a church body. This is not merely an individual thing, forgetting that we are helped by and encouraged by the Spirit. Um, now, we can be mystical or weird about this. The Spirit is not going to say things that aren't in the text. But the Spirit can help us understand and see connections that we would have otherwise missed and works in a way that those who don't know God don't get. I like how he wraps up this chapter. He says, There is more than meets the eye to Bible reading and study as habits of grace. There is a variable we can't control, an enigmatic power we cannot command, and mysterious goodness we can only receive. He is the Holy Spirit. When we get alone with the Bible, we are not alone. God has not left us to understand His words and feed our own souls. No matter how thin your training, no matter how spotty your routine, the Helper stands ready Take up the text in confidence that God is primed to bless your being with his very breath. So we need to understand the science of it. Who was it written to? When was it written? All of those sorts of things. What do the words mean? We need to see the art of it, that there is beauty in the text. We need to have the commitment to do it, and we need to recognize that we are not alone in this process, that the Holy Spirit will help us, and that other believers can encourage us as well in this uh, privilege and opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to value your word. Lord, I know this is something that um, due to just uh, the families that we grow up in or our experiences of church 
sometimes we can be lazy about stewarding your word. Sometimes we can feel overwhelmed with guilt because of impossible burdens that people have placed on us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a sense of privilege and opportunity so that we desire to do this, a sense of responsibility so we don't waste that privilege, and a sense of eagerness to study your word for ourselves and to share your truth with other people because we can't do the one another kind of ministries of the church if we're not being fed in our own souls by your truth. And we pray these things. Help us to do them well in Christ's name. Amen.